Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Hello, and thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with our experts and discuss what's currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Mike Cagno. I'm Senior Director of Pharmacy Practice and Quality at ASHP. And joining me for today's episode, Dr. Kathy Yang, infectious disease clinical pharmacist at UCSF San Francisco Medical Center, and Dr. Monica Mahoney, outpatient infectious diseases clinical pharmacy specialist. And we're going to talk about COVID-19 prevention and management in the immune compromised population. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. Hi, everyone. All right, so we're going to get started talking about emerging variants. So what's going on out there? What are the current circulating subvariants and what do they mean for COVID-19 and especially for therapeutics? So, okay, let's talk about the variants. So, of course, the big thing in the news is XBB.1.5. It's a strange variant. I mean, it's a it's a new one that's this new our newest Omicron variant. The prevalence in the US is really variable, which I think is very interesting. I mean, on the East Coast, if you look at it where Monica is in the Northeast. It's like 75% of all variants. And if you look at where I am on the West Coast, it's like 10% or something. So it's it's highly variable at this point. The problem is it's even more immune evasive than we had with the other variants. And it looks like to be a lot more contagious as well. So we keep thinking it can't get worse. And, and yet here we are. The good news so far is I think the fact that we don't have any data that suggests that it creates more severe disease. So even though more people are likely to get it and it it may be more immune invasive, so far, it doesn't look like it's going to cause more severe illness. And actually, thankfully, um, looking at hospitalizations, they are going down a little bit. So even though the variant is going up, the number of hospitalizations so far seems to be trending down. Yeah, and I agree that it's good news. One thing that kind of I kind of find funny is the new subvariant starts emerging, like, oh, it's the most immune evasive yet, or it's the most contagious one yet. And, and logically, that's it's gonna have some competitive advantage over the currently circulating subvariants, or else it's not gonna outcompete them. So, you know, in some ways we're going to continue to see some sort of competitive advantage in emerging subvariants. I think the key is, you know, how sick does it make you? And, you know, ever since Omicron emerged, I think we've been fortunate there. So clinically, what does that mean? You know, you're, you're talking about some of these interesting mutations. It's more contagious, it's more immune invasive, but as far as, you know, over the previously circulating subvariants, does it mean anything different for therapeutics? I was just going to refer everyone to our mid-year presentation. Nothing's changed. So I think my job here is done. No. So, I mean, we've lost our monoclonal antibodies, right, for treatment. None of the monoclonal antibodies are currently effective. None of them are authorized. So we, we don't have access to them. But in terms of remdesivir, malnupiravir, and nermatravir, ritonavir, thankfully, all three are still active. So we still have those in our disposal. And I know we're going to talk about at least one of those in more depth in a little bit. Great. And from a prophylaxis perspective, now as long as we're talking about monoclonals, I mean, we know basically Evusheld or Tixagivimab, so Gavimab, is now, I think, greater than 90% resistant. So even though NIH has not, is still recommending that you use it if you absolutely have to, 
taking into account the fact that the resistance rate is very, very high. And if you are going to use it just to make sure you have other things in your toolkit, you know, you, you still have to make sure that your patients are prepared to know what to do if they do get infected. Yeah, it's a good point. And I, I think we will probably dive a little bit more into that topic a little bit later. But yeah, having a plan is really important. Patients need to know that they're vulnerable. So so speaking of immunity, what's going on with vaccines and boosters? Do we have new data since our major presentation? Nope, I think we're done. Uh, no, actually, there is some data. There is in vitro data, but there isn't any good clinical data. So we do have more data to suggest that the bivalent vaccines do work. I mean, they work better than the monovalent, which is good. Immunity is short-lived. So, you know, at some point we are going to have to be at a point where we have to talk about whether or not we need another booster on top of what we're getting. The data so far as I can see is in non-immune compromise. So we don't have good data in on how well the vaccines work in immune compromised patients. But we can look at data from in the past where we know that it's about 50% effective compared to immune competent people. So I think we could probably expect about the same. And since we're on the topic of immunity, why don't we just go right ahead into the Evyshell discussion? So Kathy, you noted both NIH and FDA have issued statements about how effective or ineffective Evyshell might be. So what what are you expecting that immune compromised patients are being told right now? Are, are your clinics talking to them? How, how are they approaching this issue now that we have subvariants that are resistant? Yeah, so we at UCSF, we basically stopped administering Evusheld last month when we hit about 80% threshold of resistance. That was pretty much an arbitrary number for us. At that point, the cost of running a clinic and administering Tixagivimab was more than what we thought we would get in terms of bang for a buck. So we actually notified all our patients in advance that we would stop giving it in mid-December. And we have had a few patients who have reached out and said, well, I still really want it. And it really is just a conversation with patients to make them understand that this is not the magic bullet and getting it at this point doesn't preclude you from still getting infected. And the more important thing to to think about is what do I do if I do get infected? So what if I do get COVID? So having patients just plan in advance, you know, always be careful about hand washing, masking, especially if you're in a crowded environment, even if you're not in a crowded environment, apparently you can still get COVID. So being very careful about preventative measures and also having an action plan in place. So the CDC has great information for patients on the action plan. So having sort of a checklist in advance of what to do if you get sick, do you know who to reach out to? Do you know what your past medical history is? Do you know what your renal function is? Do you know what your hepatic function is? Do you know what your drugs are? So having that available so that if you do need to get drug, nermotrovir, ritonavir, um, and you're not at home, you know, could you go to a test to treat site? Could you go to a pharmacy? Could you have access to that in a way that's timely? Yeah, I think that's great advice. And you're right. We're back to the basics, I think, for some of the immune compromise, good hand washing, uh, good hand hygiene, uh, high quality masks, well-ventilated indoor spaces, and just being cautious. You know, the rest of the world is kind of 
return to normal. So the immune compromised patients are kind of on their own for for a lot of these things. So I think that's good advice. And as you noted, CDC has been pushing a lot of these resources to make a plan to be prepared. So, well, let's pivot to treatment. And obviously we've lost bevtilovimab. Unlike every cell, the uh, EUA for bevtilovimab has been revoked considering the cur- currently circulating subvariants. But what are our other treatment options? Obviously, we we have nermatrovir, ritonavir, rapaxilid, or molnupiravir, remdesivir, and convalescent plasma has kind of bubbled up again because we've lost these the monoclonals. So, Monica, what are you thinking with current treatment options? Where are we? Yeah, probably easier if we take them one at a time. And uh, we can pause for Kathy to give the West Coast opinion as well. In terms of remdesivir, I think we can start there. That's like the the tried and true one. It's been a struggle for us to pivot to outpatient administration of remdesivir. As everyone I'm sure is well aware of, it's an infusion over three different days. So having the patient come back for those subsequent doses, having clinics set up that they can take that volume and accommodate the patient's We thought that maybe we can utilize home infusion pharmacies and services to help administer in the patient's home. That is easier said than done. Access to the drug, billing for the medication or the services, it hasn't been as feasible. I have heard of some places having good success, but for us currently, no. Our other problem is the clinics that we were using for monoclonal antibodies. We're like, okay, great. We can pivot and do outpatient remdesivir. We're not open on the weekends. How do we accommodate for Saturday and Sunday? There's been some offline discussion of using offline dosing. You know, can we skip one day or can we skip the weekend and have the patient come back and get their second doses one or two days later? Is there some phase one data, some kinetic data that shows that you still have high enough drug levels? I think that's a debatable area. I know some institutions have done that and they're okay with saying, okay, if we maybe aren't open on Sundays, that's fine. They can get their infusion maybe Friday, Saturday, come back on Monday. Maybe they're more willing to be acceptable there versus other institutions said, no, we want three days in a row. So if you unfortunately get diagnosed with COVID, what, Wednesday or later, you know, we we, we can't accommodate you. So I, I think there's still some struggles with coordinating three outpatient days of uh, remdesivir for our, our patients that don't need to be admitted. Kathy, have you guys figured out the, the magic bullet and how to get that going? We are actually lucky in the sense that we've always run our remdesivir clinic seven days a week because we have it in our respiratory screening clinic. So we have specific rooms set aside for that. So the weekend doesn't turn out to be a barrier for us. But now as we think about moving back to a more normalized schedule of screening an acute care clinic without a specialized respiratory screening clinic, this is something that is coming up for discussion again. I mean, we're going to probably have to find a separate space. Usually these are done in the infusion clinic, which of course we can't do because the patients are immune compromised and you don't want COVID patients coming in. So it's an ongoing struggle, uh, I think, everywhere. Yep. No, definitely agree. We also are not comfortable doing the, the skip day, to be quite yeah. honest, especially since it's only three days. If this was a five-day or a 10-day therapy, I think that would make more sense. But we're not comfortable with that yet. And just want to highlight for the listeners that that is totally off-label, not supported <laughs> by the clinical trials either. Just, you know, trying to spitball how we can actually accommodate patients. In terms of molnupiravir, um, I don't think that the uptake has 
gone up that much. There definitely has been talk of it because we don't have the monoclonal antibodies because of some of the uh, drug interactions with the ritonavir component of the nermatravir ritonavir. Can we utilize more of molnupiravir? It's an oral. It's quote unquote readily available from pharmacies with the exception that pharmacists cannot prescribe it. But realistically, I, I don't think that has had too much of an uptake. Again, it goes back to the clinical data. It wasn't shown to be, quote unquote, as effective. You know, initially the interim data showed maybe a 50% reduction in hospitalizations or death. When the full data set came out, it was only more like about a 30% reduction compared to placebo, which is great. You know, 30% is better than zero, but compared to like the 90% that nermatravir ritonavir did. So I, I don't think our numbers have gone up too much. Definitely some, but maybe not uh, statistically significant. Again, I'm spitballing here. I don't have any large data to, to quote. That That's another drawback is that we we still don't have a lot of published data on the use, particularly in our vaccinated patients and especially in our immunocompromised patients. Uh, if you go back and listen to some of the mid-year content, there were a couple that I highlighted, but still largely a data-free zone. I think we probably have seen a little bit of uptick in usage just because we don't have the monoclonal antibodies anymore. And if it's a logistical barrier for patients to come in and get three days of remdesivir, this is not a bad option. I mean, it's better than not treating at all, right? So I think that's kind of the bottom line. If you can't give nermatrelvir, if you can't give remdesivir, you should do the molnupiravir. I mean, that's really the only other option that we have. Yeah. And I will agree. That's probably the hierarchy of thinking. If you can't do the first one, can't do the second one, then like you said, the third option is better than nothing. And I will mention, I think I mentioned this before, we had, if you have an option between molnupiravir and say something else like ivermectin, which has no data, no good data, like you're better off going with the molnupiravir. Like good data is better than bad data. And since you mentioned convalescent plasma, we can pivot to that one because we're going to have a lot to talk about nermatriotonivir, or I'm going to have a lot to talk about. But convalescent plasma, if you look at the NIH guidelines, they don't say yes. They don't say no. They kind of say that there is not enough data to make a decision, and they kind of leave it up to the institutions and the organizations. We don't do it currently at the beginning of the pandemic. Perhaps we did it, but just with access and then ensuring that you have high titers in your plasma that's available, that is not a readily available or feasible options for our patients here. But Kathy, I know that you said that you guys do do it in certain patient populations. Yeah, I mean, we don't do it on the outpatient. It's interesting because the EUA specifies inpatient or outpatient immune compromised patients. I think from an outpatient perspective, thinking about the logistics of how to do that makes my head spin. I mean, it's a long infusion. You have to get it from the blood bank. You have, you know, you have to have all of the, you have to have a crash cart around in case you have anaphylaxis or all that. We do do it on the inpatient side on occasion for immune compromised patients who are, who have COVID. I will say the data is highly variable and there is no RCT looking at specifically immune compromised patients. All the data is based on either sub-analysis from um, early studies with everybody or their observational studies. And all of these studies were essentially done in unvaccinated patients who, where we had no other antivirals. So it's a really mix of data, which I think makes it hard to know what to do. But like you said, the 
NIH doesn't have a recommendation either way. And if you have an immune compromised patient where you, you can't give monoclonal and you can do it feasibly, I think it's a good option. It's not going to hurt. Kathy, I'm, I'm curious for our listeners who maybe aren't as well-versed, what, I think, what does high titer mean is probably self-explanatory, but how are you procuring this? How are you guaranteeing that it is high titer convalescent plasma? What's, what does the process look like? Yeah, so that's not something the pharmacy does, right? So this is a blood bank thing. So the blood bank is responsible for procuring the high titer convalescent plasma. And there is no good standardized testing for high titers. Um, and there's multiple different tests are available out there for them to test to see what the high titers are. I think they say like it has to be one to 250 in terms of neutralization activity. I mean, the way it's measured is highly variable depending on the test. By the time we get it, like we're infusing it into the patient, we already know it's high titer because it's, it's specified in the EUA. So that's not something within our purview. The thing I think that is hard is when you get the high titer convalescent plasma, you're getting a mix of all kinds of things, IgM, IgG, whatever, right? And so that's very hard to quantify. And you also don't know when the titer is pulled, what the actual variant is that the patient was infected with, the patient who donated the convalescent plasma. So ideally, you would want to get convalescent plasma from someone who had the same variant that the patient got. That, of course, is an absolute unknown, right? We don't know what variant the patient got, and we don't know what variant the donor had. Interesting. Okay. And then to round out our treatments, nermatravir, which clearly is everyone's favorite drug to say on this call. So a couple of possible movements on, on this drug. We'll point out that we are still waiting on data, right? Uh, we had Epic HR, which got the medication authorized for patients who are high risk. That definition was not vaccinated. We are still waiting on the release of Epic SR, standard risk patients, which some of those patients in the clinical trial had received vaccine. We know that we are using this medication a lot in our patients. Combination of possibly knowledge that the drug is available. Publication of the studies that show in an unvaccinated high-risk patient population, this works fantastic. And then obviously, a prescription authorization by pharmacists as well. So we're using the medication, but are we using it in the correct patient population? Nowadays, the vast majority of our population has received at least some vaccine, whether that is all of them boosted, bivalent, monovalent, some combination. And we have some retrospective data on that. Um, I do want to highlight one article that was published in Clinical Infectious Diseases. It was looking at about 1,100 patients that were vaccinated and got nermatviratonavir compared to about 1,100 patients uh, that were vaccinated and did not get nermatviratonavir. Uh, this was in the Omicron variant. And data did show that there was still a decrease in hospitalization deaths, which was shocking to me, and also utilization of healthcare services. That citation will be available in the handout as well. A couple of caveats that study, you know, it appears to possibly be effective at preventing some of these complications or hospitalizations in our vaccinated population. I will point out that the patients that were included were our high-risk patients. So they were older. They had multiple comorbidities. Maybe they were immunocompromised as well, and they received the vaccine. So I extrapolate that to mean that perhaps in our patients that have received some vaccines, 
have one or more comorbid conditions that put you at high risk for complications of COVID-19, or obviously in our unvaccinated patient population that this drug makes sense to give, obviously, if they don't have contraindications or other reasons to, to not receive it. But in our other patient populations, your healthy, young, 40, 50-year-old who has one or no comorbid co uh, complications has received their full vaccine series. Is this effective? Is this Does this prevent anything uh, else? I, I don't know how to answer that. And they think that's a discussion for all of the institutions to decide, you know, do you have a specific algorithm for who you recommend this in. A big, not a big issue, but a point of discussion that's come up in my own institution is how to manage drug interactions. And this is where that idea of do we push nematuritonavir more so in our patients that are older than 65, that have obesity and hypertension or maybe something else, and are on these medications that need adjustment because of the ritonavir component versus uh, if they are lower risk and maybe the administration of this medication wouldn't impact their outcomes so much. Especially, as Mike said earlier, that XBB.1.5 isn't causing a severe disease. So I think there's a lot of discussion and nuances that different institutions can have. We'll point out that, of course, that study that I quoted doesn't have a lot of immunocompromised patients, which is a negative for, I think, a lot of the publications. We focus on the non-immunocompromised patients first, and then data trickle in on our immunocompromised patients as well. I have other thoughts on the matriarotonavir that I want to get into. I know that we had discussion about inpatients, but I want to pause and see if Kathy wants to add anything to what patient population they're using it in. No, when you were mentioning the 40 to 50-year-old with no or one comorbidities, I can see you laughing because I know you were talking about me because Monica was alluding to the fact that I ended up getting COVID last week in an airport, fully masked, an outdoor airport, fully masked, and she asked me if I took Paxlovid. And I was playing the numbers game. I did not because I wasn't that sick, but I gave myself five days to figure out whether or not I needed to or not. And by the third or fourth day, I started to feel better. So I didn't. I did think about it though, because I thought, well, what if I get long COVID? Should I take it to prevent long COVID? And that actually was something that I actually really did think about. But since I felt better fairly quickly, I did not. I also want the record to show that when I texted Kathy, I said a patient in their 40s. <laughs> I tapped it at that. <laughs> Mike, I would have been like, so 55 or no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> Although, you know, so we have not really talked about long COVID. Let's um, let's put a pin in that one. And I think we have one more podcast to record with this group. That might be a, a good topic. Monica, I admit it. You wanted to sing XBB dub. Oh, totally. You all want to hear my glorious voice coming over on your podcast. Yeah. Um, definitely a way to get your ratings down. But I will segue nicely into this concept or this question of using nermatriotonavir in our hospitalized inpatients. That's come up in a couple of different ways. I've gotten questions on it. Uh, and how I've gotten the questions phrased is more so a patient develops COVID, they qualify for it, and an outpatient, then they get sick enough that they need to be admitted. Can you continue to dispense it? Uh, and I think that comes down to, are they admitted for COVID or are they admitted with COVID? Which I hate that distinction, but we have to talk about that. And if you go back to the 
um, fact sheet for healthcare providers for the emergency use authorization for nemetiviratonavir. So it has not been updated since September 2022. And because I vocalized that date, that means that tomorrow there's going to be a new version that comes out. But in that version, they don't specify patient location. They do have to say that the patient has to be diagnosed with COVID-19. They do uh, say that, you know, it could be whatever test, whether it's a, a PCR or a home test buried in there. It does say that their symptoms have to have been in the past five days, but it doesn't say that this is only for uh, non-hospitalized patients or this is only for outpatients, which Mike was saying that this differs from the malnupiravir and the bebtilovimab because those specifically were for non-hospitalized patients. So the lack of whether or not they're in or out of the hospital in the EUA opens up for interpretation that perhaps you could use nematoviratonavir in qualified patients who happen to be hospitalized. So then it comes down to, okay, are they hospitalized because of COVID-19 or are they hospitalized because they had a car accident and they happened to, you know, be also diagnosed for COVID while they were being worked up for their pelvic fracture, et cetera. We absolutely have used this inpatient and we have, we've used all three of the drugs that we've talked about, malnupiravir, uh, remdesivir, and nematoviratonavir for the quote-unquote outpatient ones, the malnupiravir and nematoviratonavir, we've only done the ones that were admitted with, not the admitted for. Is that the correct thing to do? That's how we're interpreting the EUA, and that's how we've developed our guidelines. Um as long as they meet the other criteria, I know it's still for a five-day course, it's still within five days of symptom onset. But it's restricted. All the, these medications need approval by our antimicrobial stewardship pager. And whenever I've gotten that page, you know, the first question I ask the physician is, okay, well, were they admitted for COVID or was this an incidental finding? And if they tell me if it's an incidental finding, then as long as they meet the other stipulations or criteria, we have been using it in-house. Kathy, how about you guys? I think we're the same with you. We basically use Paxlovid on the inpatient side for the with COVIDs, not the for COVIDs. We don't use molnupiravir at all on the inpatient side. I mean, at that point, if we can't use Paxlovid, then we're going with pine tree remdesivir, three-day remdesivir, just because the data is better with respect to effectiveness. So, you know, 89% reduction in hospitalization compared to 31% for molnupiravir. So we don't do molnupiravir on the inpatient side. We essentially do use Paxlovid, even in patients who, you know, if they're hospitalized and come in, we find that they're COVID positive or they were COVID positive and already receiving Paxlovid, then we will continue it on the inpatient side. We set it up in a way that um, when we dispense the drug, we dispense the entire five-day course to them as if it was an outpatient so that when they leave, they can just take the remainder of the box with them to go home. That way it prevents them from having to go to another pharmacy afterwards and get a, you know, a partial box or, you know, having to be infected and walk into a pharmacy. Well, and that also makes sense because you're, you're receiving courses from HHS from your distribution and you're reporting in courses, I think, right? So it probably makes sense to keep that course with the patient. You have some interesting information being published on, you know, speaking of patients who can't take Paxlovid because of the retinavir component, is there anything on the horizon we should keep our eyes on for future therapies? Yeah, so more new drug names for you to pronounce. And since I'm saying them first, whatever I determine is going to be for all of times. So there are two oral drugs I want to quickly highlight. One is incitrovir, 
who knows if that's right, that is another 3C-like protease inhibitor, so same as nirmatrovir. The benefit is that you don't need a ritonavir booster, so all those drug interaction concerns go away. It has been approved for treatment of COVID in Japan, not in the U.S. yet, currently being studied in a phase two and three study. Interestingly, results from the 2A and the 2B arms have been published with don't ask me how or why they slice and dice those, but very quickly. So the 2A study was published in December of last year, conducted September 2021 to January 2022 in Japan, mostly with the Delta variant. 69 patients randomized to either 125 milligrams daily of encitrovir for five days, 250 milligrams of encitrovir for five days, or placebo young population, mostly male, mostly about 40 years old, 90 or so percent of patients received the two doses of the mRNA vaccine. So probably a similar population to who we're seeing, you know, infected today. And the results, you know, small study, but in citrovir compared to placebo, faster uh, decline in viral titers, faster time to viral clearance and faster resolutions of symptoms. Side effect profile, pretty tolerable with a transient increase in HDL. The 2B study was published in, I want to say also December 2022 in the clinical infectious disease. This time it was done in Japan and South Korea, January and February of 2022, greater than 90% were the Omicron BA.1 variant. Very similar setup. The only difference here is that there was a loading dose on day one. So either 375 milligrams of citrovir, then 125 milligrams daily on days two to five, or a loading dose of 750, and then 250 every day uh, for days two to five. About 140 patients in each arm, so slightly larger. Again, a young patient population, but this time we did have four whopping patients who had who were older than 65 years old. Again, mostly males, mostly vaccinated and similar. These seem to prevent, have faster clearance compared to placebo. Um, when they looked between doses, there was no difference. So it was that lower dose that was actually approved in Japan. Tried to look in more information as to what's the tablet size. You know, is it a single 125 milligrams? Did they end up going with that loading dose uh, and was not able to get more information? So approved in Japan, maybe. I don't know what the, the plan is for the U.S. There are ongoing phase three studies, so maybe more to come. And then the second one that I want to talk about is VV116, which when I was reading into it, it made me think of Stitch from Lilo and Stitch, Experiment 626. Mike's is rolling his eyes, but... I have no children, therefore I have no context. <laughs> uh, VV116, it is an oral analog of remdesivir. So we've talked a lot about remdesivir. I think uh, our listeners are familiar with the efficacy or its use. So an oral version would be fantastic. Phase three study in New England Journal of Medicine published December 2022 conducted in April and May of 2022 in China. Very similar randomization. Uh, symptomatic patients, high risk for progression to severe COVID, were randomized to either oral VV116, a loading dose of 600 milligrams every 12 hours on the first day, then 200 milligrams every 12 hours, days two to five, or this was an active control group, or randomized to nirmatrovir with the standard dosing for five days. Larger study, again, it was a phase three study, so about 410, 411 patients in each arm, slightly older, about 53 years old. Half of them were about male. And then a mostly vaccinated population, but it was kind of broken down. So about 30% had what they called standard dose, I'm assuming the non-boosted. 45% had a booster dose, and 25% were actually unvaccinated. 
So the outcomes, there is no difference in sustained clinical recovery, no difference in time to symptom recovery, no deaths, and no difference in time to negative COVID tests between the two groups. Now, remember, this was an active controlled. It was this oral uh, remdesivir analog versus nirmatavir ritonavir. So it seems to perform as well as what we all think of nirmatavir ritonavir. And side effects, I said that there were fewer side effects reported in the VV116 group. I don't know where this is in terms of application um, or uh, approval, but two potential uh, oral agents on the horizon for COVID. And that should be great news for not just our immune compromised patients, but for anyone who's trying to manage those drug interactions or navigate three days of consecutive outpatient remdesivir infusion. Well, uh, that's all the time we have today. Uh, I do want to thank both Dr. Kathy Yang and Dr. Monica Mahoney, which I did not do this intentionally, I swear. But once again, I failed to mention where Dr. Mahoney works. She is clinical pharmacy specialist about patient infectious diseases at the Israel Deaconess Medical Center. It, it was my script. It was in the script last time. It was in the script this time. So that's on me. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources, such as our COVID-19 Resource Center. The living handout from the original webinar went back to June. That was from our summer meeting. This is the second podcast in the series, but we have been updating that handout. So as all the information we're talking about um, today and through this series of podcasts, we'll continue to update that handout so it will be up to date. So that's posted along with this podcast recording. So be on the lookout for um, the enduring webinar from our mid-year symposium. So we did this group plus uh, Sarah Parsons also did a, a similar webinar presentation in mid-year, and that one included some perspectives on pediatric patients. So we'll be launching that in February. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content. Thanks, Monica and Kathy, for joining us. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.